I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hello, my dear. Hello. So I know that you are struggling a little bit today. We are back to recording long distance just for this one. Yeah, I was... I was not feeling well on Thursday, so I couldn't hang to do a whole other episode. So he decided to wait until I was maybe feeling a little better and then record separately on Sunday. I still feel like hell, but here we are. Here we are. We're doing <laughs> Here we thing. are. We're I'm alive. Yeah, I have somewhat of a voice, so here we are. Yeah, and what we're going to be talking about today, I feel like is very important. Uh, yes. And in doing my prep for this episode, I was really glad that I was learning so much about this topic. But I do want to go ahead and straight from the jump, give a huge trigger warning for huge, huge trigger warning. Yes. Yes. Because um, this subject is really, really heartbreaking, uh, really, really sad. And I'm kind of appalled that we don't talk about it more. Although as we move through this episode, it will become pretty clear as to why we 
don't know as much about this as maybe we should, right. uh, because it was only pretty recently that this began being talked about openly, kind of at all. Definitely. And that subject that we're going to be talking about today is the quote unquote comfort women. Yes. I hate that. I do too. Term, and I, I'm glad that in, a, in most of the notes that I read and most of the articles, comfort women was often in quotes, which I appreciate because I understand that that's what they were called at the time. But it is, it, ha- it has nothing to do with what these women were to the men at that time. You know what I mean? They weren't like, it, it makes it sound too nice by calling it, them comfort it women. It does. You know? Yes, it does. So. Uh, and that is, it's based on like a Japanese translation, essentially. It's like a euphemism, mm-hmm. yeah, for a word we don't typically use, but for prostitute. It's um, kind of like a, I guess the, I wrote the Japanese word, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, I'm so sorry, yamfu, which I guess is the euphemism. And so that was why it's translated to comfort women. So the comfort women were women and girls forced into sexual slavery by the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II. Right. I mean, and the reason why this kind of existed at all is because after the second Sino-Japanese War, which was between 1937 and 1945, the Japanese had a PR problem. They had an image issue uh, because there were atrocities that took place during that war. Specifically, um, there was one really, really terrible one. And again, I'm going to give a trigger warning throughout this entire section. Yeah. There was something called the Rape of Nanking. And it was one of the worst things I've I've read about. And if you are going to look it up, if you're going to look up this mass, you know, it's also called the the Nanking Massacre. Uh-huh. If you're going to look it up on Wikipedia or whatever, I just want to give you a real trigger warning because there are pictures on Wikipedia that I was not expecting to see. Yeah, uh, it's that are it, very, very graphic. The number of women who were women and girls who were assaulted during this time was somewhere between 20,000 and 80,000 women during this non-king rape slash massacre. Um, so it really was just this horrible, widespread destruction. Right. I mean, and it's it's not even, I mean, I, I can't emphasize enough how bad this was. I mean, you think about sexual assault and rape and you're like, that's bad enough. But this was more than that. It was brutal. It was torture. It was it was it was torture. Yeah, it was it was torture. Um, These were disarmed combatants and unarmed Chinese civilians uh, that were raped brutally and then often murdered and mutilated. So the Japanese soldiers would go door to door searching for girls and women uh, specifically. And it was it was just madness. Like when people got there later and reported on it, of course, the world was horrified by what they they found. They ended up burying these, I mean, tens of thousands of people in these mass graves. So once people kind of learned what happened in Nanking, the whole world was so horrified by what they were seeing and hearing about. And the emperor Kirihito was concerned about Japan's image after that catastrophe. Like you said, they were having a bit of a PR problem. Right. So he wanted to curb rising anti-Japanese sentiment as much as possible. And so that's when he ordered the military to expand its so-called comfort 
infestations, end quote, or military brothels in an effort to prevent further atrocities like this. That's what he said, right? He's yeah. like, we want to prevent um, this kind of thing from happening again. It, it's right. such a weird it's, logic. Well, it is because he's thinking that it's sexual like repression. Like these that's men haven't this. had enough sex. Right. So that's why they went out and they raped all these women and girls. So that's that's where this whole thing starts off on the absolute right. wrong foot because it's a misunderstanding of what sexual assault is. Um, right. And then there was also a huge... Huge, huge, huge number of people coming down with venereal diseases. And that was another thing that was seen as very shameful. So they, in this emperor's head, in the Japanese military's head at the time, if we could kind of control the the women that these men were with, then we wouldn't be having as many venereal diseases and things like that as well. Right. And I also think that there was an element of... As much as they wanted to be like, oh, we're going to control them from be- from raping women. Yeah. I also think that there was a element of also not caring if they raped these women because no. what they really wanted to control was their image. And so what they thought was, yeah. if we could have it all in a government institution, then word won't get out. We'll be able to protect the spread of whatever happens here. So right. even it's not going to be it's not going to be random civilians where it's going to reach the news. It's going to be secret. It's going to be kept on under wraps it's going to be less people it's going to be more organized it's not going to be this crazy massacre that happened before right and so the first military brothels or quote-unquote comfort stations I'm going to refer to them in the way that they were referred but just know that I hate the term comfort stations yes we are saying them with quotes every time we say every time anything just imagine quotation marks around our words (laughs) absolutely so these first military brothels or comfort stations as they would come to be known were said to have been occupied initially by Japanese sex workers who volunteered for this service. But that would quickly change. Yeah, that wasn't enough. They didn't have enough enough women that wanted to do it. Um, Which, I mean, in my head, it's like, how many do you need? Like, it just, the whole concept of it is so crazy to me. Well, so the fact that they, they needed more than just the people that offered was is crazy to me. It seems like to me that it quickly, which as we know, I mean, of course, it got started off on the wrong foot because of a vast misunderstanding of of the power dynamics at play and the reasons behind sexual assault and rape right. because it it wasn't about satisfying this need. It quickly became about power and control and what they could get away with. And they were were permitted to get away with a lot. So very soon they were, again in quotes, recruiting women yeah. for the brothels by kidnapping or coercing them. So women were rounded up on the streets of Japanese occupied territories. Um, Sometimes they were convinced to travel because they were being offered better paying jobs like nursing jobs. There was I actually wrote a few um, different stories down of different women that I'll just kind of refer to throughout the episode of how I learned about their stories. Um, A lot of people would respond to like ads in the paper for jobs. They would say, you know, you can help the military effort by nursing or working in a factory and all these different things. So these young women and girls wanting to help their families would go willingly thinking that they were going to be doing a job of some sort and then being tricked into sexual slavery. 
Right. And these women came from all over Southeast Asia, but the majority were Korean or Chinese. But there are stories uh, of women from the Philippines, Mm -hmm. women from Malaysia, women from all over this region. Yeah. Once they were at the brothels, the women were forced to have sex. They were raped um, by their captors in brutal inhumane conditions they uh, there's a lot of testimonies and all of them share a lot of similarities there were repeated rapes especially before battles they increased um there was a lot of physical assaults pregnancies sexually transmitted diseases and also just their living conditions themselves were really horrifying yeah and that's a hotbed for more you know disease and unwellness if you're not going to put them in a in a in a clean environment you know especially when like if you're naked and you're having sex like it does need to be clean so it just kind of shows again the lack of concern for the health and well-being of these girls and women right i mean and some of these women talk about how they they didn't get any breaks either. So like yeah. between between men, which again is a hotbed for like disease. Uh, I just thinking about that, just like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And I do me. also want to point out that while a lot of these women were lured there under the pretense of a job or something like that, there were also, you know, very poor families who basically were thought that they were renting their daughters out for a job, not yeah. not necessarily to be in brothels. And then there was also a good percentage of these women who were straight up kidnapped. Sold. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, that were straight up kidnapped. Yeah. Yes. There is a woman named Lee Oksyan who was kidnapped in Busan, South Korea by a group of uniformed Japanese soldiers at the age of 14. Mm. And she never saw her parents again. And she yep. told... Um, she was telling her story to a news outlet in 2013 about her experience. And it was just so sad to me because it's just this 14 year old girl. She's walking home along the side of the road. It happened so fast. Yeah. She had no no idea what was happening. Um, and then she was held prisoner and she described it as saying it was no place for humans and that she was being constantly beaten and constantly threatened uh, by her captors. Yeah, it's and an estimated ninety percent of comfort women did not survive the war. That's how how terrible it it was. It was brutal. And there was another woman that I read about by the name of Kim Hexun, and she was born in China, and her stepfather ended up selling her to Japanese soldiers. So there was some kind of like you know selling as well Mm -hmm. as you know kidnapping and other modes of you know, I guess, recruiting these women. All of it, just horrifying, just so scary. And I just can't imagine. And they're all so young. You know, it's all of these stories and testimonies that I read were all from very, very young women. And I know, you know, I was reading a little bit about, um, you know, we, we talk we talked about purity culture in, in the sense of, you know, Christianity and stuff a couple of weeks ago. But I know that there's also a lot of um, a very different type of purity culture in Southeast Asian countries. And to think of these young girls and women who probably don't even know what sex is, you know, and are being lured into these situations, having no idea what is going on. Like, that's the thing. When I hear about young girls that are put in these situations, they don't even know how to react because they don't know what's happening to them. 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most scary situations that I could ever imagine. I mean, this is one of the worst things that I feel like could happen to you. I think about that in terms of like, we think about the women in Cleveland, right? Who were like locked in that house for for uh, 10 years. Ariel Castro, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? You know, and like, to me, when I hear stories like that, or like the movie Room, for instance, you know, like, to me, that, for me personally, that is my nightmare. Like, that is being kept. Yes. Is so scary. My biggest fear is being abducted, not by aliens, but by people. Like By people and being kept, right? Yes, Like, if you're going to take me, just kill me. I don't want, I don't want to be trapped in a room somewhere I don't know that is it and I think it's crazy I read so many of those stories like I read so many memoirs of survivors or stories of things like that because I think that's my biggest fear ever right (laughs) and I do want to say because I don't want it to get twisted or or confused this is not to um downplay survivors right like I I don't ever I don't ever want to say like death would be better than I'm saying for me I'm not saying for everybody I'm saying I'm so scared like the thought of that I would rather die like that's all I'm saying (laughs) I do find the thought of it to be one of the scariest things and the fact that the women who did survive this managed to survive it and go on um to live in sometimes, in some cases, quite extraordinary lives yeah. despite the circumstances uh, is incredible. And I actually think probably, and this is pure speculation on my part, I didn't read uh, anything about this, but I would guess that part of what kept these women going was the fact that they weren't alone, that there were yeah. other women there in similar situations. Yeah, um, I hope I hope that, you know, even after the war that these women and girls were able to find other people that had experienced something similar that they could rely upon, because I can imagine going back into society, having survived something like that would be incredibly isolating and so difficult without proper help. Well, it was. And we'll talk a little bit about what happened to them Mm -hmm. after the war, uh, you know, a a little later on. But it was incredibly isolating, especially like, as you said, in in their culture, they really didn't discuss these kinds of things. And so unfortunately, through no fault of their own, you know, having been forced into this situation, when they finally did exit the situation, they were outcasts yeah. in, in a lot of ways because of something that happened to them that they had no real control over. Yeah, they're really... Which is another it, tragedy. Yeah, I'm not trying to generalize because I, I don't have the kind of knowledge on this culture or anything, but just from things that I've read for research for this episode, you know, I read a little bit about I guess, honor culture and things like that, where there is this idea that, you know, we all, we know all too well that the responsibility of the rape is on the woman and not the man. So these right. women were seen as the problem, you know, not right. victims. I mean, we see that even in our culture, very often a lot of that victim blaming, and especially we saw it a lot kind of like earlier on in the 20th century, stuff like that happened a lot where it would be, and, and we see it a lot in purity culture and Christian communities as well where there's this concept of you being spoiled right where it's just like you're not pure anymore even if it's not your fault right which is extremely um problematic for obvious reasons and having to reconcile that with yourself knowing that this wasn't your choice but still probably feeling like it was your fault 
somehow. I'm sure a lot of these women felt like, uh, well, if I hadn't gone out that day, maybe they wouldn't have taken me. If I well, hadn't yeah. gone to that job, you know, listened to that job ad, you know what I mean? I'm sure that there was so much guilt that they shouldn't have felt but did feel during and after these events. Right, yeah, yeah. And it was under such an umbrella of silence for so long, which only breeds more shame and guilt. Exactly. And one of the other things that just broke my heart was um, the fact that they had so many health issues afterwards because, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. repeated rape and sexual assault can cause infertility it can cause Mm -hmm. a lot of damage to um your organs on the inside and lots of other things so a lot of these women were unable to have children um Mm -hmm. they were sterile a lot of times these women if they were to get pregnant in these brothels they were forced to have abortions that were not very safe so Mm -hmm. a lot of these women would go on the rest of their lives too where again you know we're talking back in 19 40s, 40s. Like middle of the 40s. So I think that, you know, still to this day, a lot of what women feel is their purpose is birthing children and, and you know, living that normal life in that way. I can imagine, you know, if they were to get into a relationship with somebody and have to tell them, look, I can't have children because of this. Right. Again, that that other added level of shame, like I can't even do the thing that I want to do with my body anymore. That was taken from me. Right. You know? Yeah. You weren't given the choice. It's terrible. Yeah. And the women were also injected with something called Salversan, uh, which was used as a treatment for syphilis. And that together with the damage to their organs caused by um, the high number of men that they were exposed Mm to, uh, created this super high number of sterility among those women. Yes, there were many who were left unable to have children. There were some who were left unable to walk afterwards yeah. because of the violent treatment that they had experienced while in the camps. And um, the end of World War II did not end military brothels in Japan. No. In 2007, the Associated Press reported um, that the United States authorities allowed comfort stations to operate well past the end of the war until Douglas MacArthur shut the system down in 1946. So by then, between 20,000 and 410,000 women had been enslaved in at least 125 brothels. Ugh. And in 1993, the UN's Global Tribunal on Violations of Women's Human Rights estimated that at the end of World War II, 90% of the comfort women had died. And of the ones who survived, as we just discussed, they had lasting health complications. Um, Others had died of venereal diseases after the war. Um, Many lived as societal outcasts, as we said. And and others completed suicide because of what they had experienced. So we were left with very few um, surviving women yeah. who had experienced this. There was there was something that I read in my notes that I wrote down because I it was very impactful to me, but it said by choosing to live the survivors made themselves outcasts. You know, yes. it's that it's that bravery mm-hmm. in surviving, knowing that you've kind of got that scarlet letter on you. Right. You know? 
Mm-hmm, absolutely. And meanwhile, Japanese officials destroyed documents on the system and downplayed the story of its enslavement of the women as a distasteful incident, yeah. with some officials denying that comfort stations existed at all. It yeah. wasn't... It wasn't until the 1980s when some women began to share their stories because in 1987, the Republic of South Korea became a liberal democracy uh, and women began to discuss their ordeals more publicly because a lot of these women had kept in touch with each other because they were social outcasts and the only other people who would understand what they went through were each other. So yeah. they began to speak more openly as a as a unit yeah. about what had happened to them. And, and try to get some legal action and compensation. In December of 1991, three South Korean women filed suit in Japan around the 50th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, which I think is a perfect time to be able to bring up something like this, although it should have been brought up, you know, long before. So in 1990, that's when South Korea actually came out and criticized Japanese officials' denial of the event. So they came out on a public stage and they were like, look, we know this happened. You know it happened. Stop saying it didn't happen. And the Japanese government was pretty quiet on the matter. But as more and more women came forward in 1993, they were finally forced to acknowledge the atrocities, though they did continue to downplay the severity. They were like, yes. This is a thing that happened, but it wasn't that bad, you right. know, and they, they kept trying to say that these women volunteered for this. Yes. I mean, this was supposed to be a positive PR move in the beginning, and clearly it wasn't. It's almost like they're still trying to continue that facade of um, trying to change the public's image of this time and the war, you know? Right. It really felt like they were trying to say, look, this was all on the up and up. There may have been isolated incidents of, you know, bad things happening or maybe a couple of the women were kidnapped. But the vast majority of the women wanted to be here. They wanted to do this. Just gaslighting such a large amount of people by doing that, you know. Yes, it's. It's horrible. So in 2000, and it went on much like this for a long time. There's a a lot of tension between specifically, though it happened in other places, it's been South Korea who's been the most vocal about this. And it's caused a lot of tension between the two nations. Like they have a lot of issues surrounding this thing in particular because the Japanese government really, 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 really wants the world to forget that this happened. You know, and South Korea is like, no, this is fucked up. We need the world to know that this happened. Yeah, kind of the opposite. So they're kind of pushing the... Uh, They're kind of pushing Japan to take responsibility and also to finally give these women the apology and the compensation that That they they deserve. deserve. Yeah, absolutely. So on April 17th, 2007, there was the discovery of seven official documents in the archives of the Tokyo trials. And it suggested that imperial military forces forced women whose fathers had attacked an army police um, group in Japan to work in frontline brothels in China, Indonesia, and Indochina. These documents were initially made public at the war crimes trial. So at this point, I mean, we are actually finding official documents that are saying that like these women were forced essentially yep. to pay for their father's crimes. Um, they took their daughters and forced them into these brothels. So we're finding official yeah, um, documentation at this point. Luckily, right. you know. 
And then the following month, in May of 2007, there was a a Japanese journalist who announced the discovery of 30 Dutch documents submitted to the Tokyo Tribunal as evidence of forced prostitution in 1944. So... At this point, it's becoming harder and harder for Japan to deny it. I mean, in in 2014, China also produced almost 90 documents that was ironclad proof that the Japanese military forced Asian women to work in frontline brothels during World War II. Yeah, so it's getting real high and spicy. I was going to say the Japanese government people are coming in and closing in on them, you know, to take responsibility, and I think that's great. Yeah. So as these documents continued to be released, the Japanese government finally announced that it would give reparations to surviving Korean comfort women in 2015. But after a review, South Korea was like, nah, son, this ain't enough. Like they they looked at it and they were like, we need a stronger apology from you. Yeah. And Japan denied that request. They were like, look, we offered you something. It, it felt very much like they were just like, can you just shut the fuck up? Like, it was take something it. like a couple hundred bucks per woman or something, right? Like it was just a very small amount of compensation. I, I think it was... A pretty small amount of compensation. And also, I think their apology was very, like, surface-level apology. It wasn't enough for what they had done. And meanwhile, there's only a few dozen women forced into sexual... And that's another thing. There aren't that many women left. Like, so for you to offer basically nothing to the women who are surviving as a government, you know, when you could offer... So much more. So much more. It's so wild. But so there's only a few dozen women forced into sexual slavery by Japan are still alive at this point. And one of them was Yang Su Lee, a 90-year-old survivor who had been very vocal about her desire to receive an apology from the Japanese government. She said, and I think that this sums it up kind of perfectly with what we were talking about with the term comfort women and comfort stations. She said, quote, I never wanted to give comfort to those men. Exactly. And that's what she said to the Washington Post in 2015. And she said, I don't want to hate or hold a grudge, but I can never forgive what happened to me. Mm. You know, and that she's a 90 year old woman, you know, like just tragic, tragic. So even discussion of comfort women is controversial in Japan. There are advocates in Japan. Like I said, you know, earlier, there are some Japanese journalists who are constantly looking for documents who are challenging the Japanese government and saying that they have long denied justice to these women, while there are also government supporters that say that there's no evidence that the women were forced into sex slavery, a claim that was made as recently as this year. Crazy. Uh, and that Japan has already apologized. Yeah. They're like, listen. That weak apology you already did, apologized. That's all you're getting. Sorry. <laughs> right. I mean, and it does appear that they did plan on giving something like $8 million to help former comfort women. But it's really not enough. And some people have pointed out um, that none of Japan's apologies have been official because none have been ratified by the legislature or approved by the executive branch. Yeah. Uh, And there have been no laws enacted to acknowledge the country's responsibility. So they want to give an apology without actually making it official, like putting it in any kind of official capacity. Right. And And I'm sure, again, that's a way of trying to kind of remove this from history as much as they can, you know, so that people, you know, what we're doing right now is exactly what they don't want people to do to continue talking about it. 
Exactly. Like, so for like a hundred years from now, they don't want people to be able to point to any legislature, any actual like documentation. Yeah. um, To say that that they take responsibility. Right. Yeah. Because as recent as this year, there have been people coming forward saying, like, we have documents that the women volunteered for this, that they signed paperwork for this. And then they've had to walk that back. But unfortunately, what happens when they do that is it's giving power to people who want to believe the government, right? Uh Because we know that people don't read more than the headline. So even though there is no actual proof, they're like, well, we think that there's documents that they signed that said that they wanted to be working as sex workers in these military brothels. Right, so it's not alerting the public in a way that it should because they're making it sound like, oh, there might be some documents. There, yeah. It's not it's not making the people invested in in the story. Well, it's making the people who want to believe that these atrocities did not happen. It's giving them something to point to, to say, like, well, he's saying that there's documents and I'm not going to read any further into that and just believe that there must be documents because nobody wants to believe that something as terrible as this could, one, happen and could, two, be sanctioned by your government like right. people don't want to believe that you know like yeah I mean I think that this is something that could happen I think that's why you know we don't talk a whole lot about the internment camps in the United States I think that is a huge um, point of shame for our government and I, I understand that you know a lot of countries in the past that have made mistakes you know will try to minimize or not talk about certain atrocities but because if we don't do that like we all know it's just going to continue to happen absolutely I mean I would compare well it's not quite the same but I think about our inability as a nation to really address what happened in Guantanamo Bay Uh you know what I mean it's just like we don't want to believe that We We would do something that horrible. And if we did, we want to believe that it was justified in some way. Yes. Yeah. We don't don't want to be the bad guys. The only time it's okay to be the bad guy is if you're doing it for the greater good. So to realize that you were just bad, period. I think that's something that's really hard for people to reconcile, especially when you have a lot of like national pride. If you're very proud of where you're from, your culture, Mm -hmm. who you are, I can understand um, admitting that you know, your government has been responsible for something so ugly can be something I think very personal for a lot of people. And I think we've seen that a lot, you know, throughout this past year with the election and the insurrection, you know, people take their government and their beliefs in, in their government very, very seriously and personally. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's hard for people to acknowledge that there's good and there's bad, right? So, I think about this a lot of the times with Germany, for instance, right? Yeah. Like when I was a kid, I I couldn't wrap my head around how a country that was in my eyes responsible for something as horrifying as the Holocaust could have anything else that was positive, right? right. You know? And the truth of the matter is there's you're going to find good and horrific in every country's history. Like there is going to be both and it doesn't necessarily mean anything about you as a Japanese person, right? Like that your country committed something that was so heinous, right? And Uh so you should be able, it doesn't say anything about you as a human being to say, this was fucked up, this was wrong. Like our nation owes these people 
an apology. Right. And at I, bare minimum. Yeah. And, and I wonder also because, you know, when there's a massacre or a war and people are killed and I guess more or are hurt, I guess, in more like societally accepted ways like in war and things like that and this was sexual assault which I think makes it even more difficult for people to admit because it is such a shameful thing even to this day it isn't you know I think that there's something about um well I feel like there are rules of war in quotes you know what I mean and like yes that seems ridiculous because it's just like war is so ugly and it, it feels weird that we should try and justify certain deaths over other deaths or certain right, atrocities right. over other atrocities. But there are reasons that there are rules of engagement and there are reasons that everyone was so horrified by the rape of non-king. You know yeah, what I mean? And I think or just, just going into unarmed innocence yeah. and destroying that. Yeah, like, I almost, it, and it's I horrifying like, to people. And I feel like the discussion of murder or war is something that is much more um, socially acceptable. You know, seeing it on the news, reading it in the paper, than hearing about details of sexual assault or, you know, forced prostitution and things like that and sexual slavery. You know, it's just not as easily discussed and digested by people, which I think is why people want to deny it even more, you know? Right. I mean, and there is also this concept of women as being a protected group, right? Like, because for so long, it was like women and children. Yeah. Right. These are off limits. And so these were not only women, but a lot of them were children. And I think that that was also horrifying to people was like, these are groups that are off limits. These are groups that are supposed to be protected by society. They're not even in times of war we shouldn't be allowed to do these things. Yeah, you know, like it's an unspoken that. rule. <laughs> so Julie Tang, who is a retired San Francisco judge and co-chair of the Comfort Women Justice Coalition, previously told NBC News that there were about 50 comfort women alive and that she got involved in a project to establish a memorial in San Francisco in 2015. Today, uh, only about 20 registered South Korean comfort women who are all in their 80s and 90s are still alive. And this was as of last year, I believe. Yeah. So over the last few decades, the U.S. has seen the birth of multiple more multiple organizations that have joined the comfort women movement most like the korean american forum of california appear to be largely focused on educating the public about the issue rather than pressuring japan for an apology so there are some groups that are really pushing and advocating for japan to make a formal official apology and issue reparations to these women there are others who are just like you know what We're not even going to go down that route. We just really want the public to be aware that this was a thing that happened. And we need to educate people that this was a thing that happened, you know, like so that it doesn't get forgotten. Right. If the government isn't going to do what it should do and give a proper apology and acknowledge what happened, then, yeah, it, it is the responsibility of civilians to continue to tell the story and to talk about it so that... 
you know, yes, it, it doesn't happen. <laughs> yes, but the Japanese government is even trying to prevent that from happening. Yeah. So comfort women memorials have continued to go up all across the world, including in 10 cities across the United States, with one of the biggest ones being the one in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. However, Japan has tried to remove and block comfort women memorials across the globe. In 2017, the Japanese government filed a brief in support of a lawsuit seeking the removal of a memorial in a Los Angeles suburb. Later that year, the mayor of Osaka, Japan, terminated Osaka's sister city relationship with San Francisco after it became, according to activists, the first major city to install a memorial statue. And it has also, Japan has also eliminated comfort women from Japanese textbooks. So it is doing everything in its power. I mean, it has been a real kind of back and forth, even with the relationship of the United States and Japan. Definitely. Um, for instance, there was supposed to be a memorial that went up in Atlanta, but the Japanese government blocked that and it ended up having to go up in a smaller city outside of Atlanta. But the activists there in Atlanta actually said, you know what? This was actually good for us because we got so much more attention right. um, by them trying to prevent this statue from going up yeah. than we ever would have gotten before. Well, and and so what, now more people know. And that's what I was thinking when I was reading about so much of the current stuff that's going on. It's like, why why haven't we heard more about this? I do recall, I believe I've seen the Comfort Women statue when I was in mm-hmm. San Francisco, but I was not aware of the the tensions surrounding this story at all. I'm amazed mm-hmm. that it isn't discussed more in the news. Yeah, yeah, me too. But there is some good news. So high school and college students have joined the fight for justice for comfort women by forming their own groups to inform their peers and even contribute financially to survivors. This warmed my heart so much. It warms mine too, I know. In Massachusetts, four schools based mostly in Boston formed a loose association in the spring of 2018 that led to a screening of a film based on a comfort woman's story called I Can Speak and donated $6,000 to House of Sharing, a South Korean nursing home for comfort women. So even... I that's the thing is like if your government is going to let you down I love to see that there's so many good people in the world that are willing to step up and make it right to show like look we're not all going to to turn our backs on you you know we see you and we want to support you right and six thousand dollars it's not a lot of money but it's incredible that they cared enough to do that like these are just students you know these are just people that cared so much and six thousand dollars is huge I mean I remember when I was young um, my mom had a friend who was going through a really bad divorce and financially really struggling and I always would like sell jewelry or painted rocks and just crazy stuff like on my street corner and I remember making like 500 bucks one summer and my friend and I that did it were like what are we going to do with this money like how are we going to spend it and we ended up giving it to him it's $500 it's not going to get him very far but it was something that meant a lot to him still because yes you know people that cared about him were willing to give something you know and I think that that means more than the money itself right it's the fact that you have this group of American students on the other side of the globe from you who heard your story, were moved so much by your story and wanted to show you that like we see you, right? And like we're there for you. And I also wanted to point out, you know, the fact that there's even a nursing home for comfort women that exists. It's amazing. Should 
it's incredible. It's incredible. And I'm glad that they that it exists and they have each other. I know. But it also is sad because what it points to is that they were so outcast yep. by society that even through their old age, this is something that has defined their lives yeah. from the time they were children. Yeah, basically. I wonder I wonder if it's a choice for them to want to be in a uh, one of those nursing homes or if they would mm-hmm. rather be in a regular home. But because of what they went through, they wouldn't be treated right. You know what I mean? Like, that's really right. sad to me that maybe they would have to go to a special, you know, assisted living center because of I'm what glad they went it exists. Through. I'm glad it exists, Absolutely. but it also makes me so sad that yeah. even, even in the last years of your life, you're not able to really mesh with the rest of society. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that this is a thing that unfortunately their their lives were pushed entirely off course yeah because of of this thing that happened to them that they had no control over and, and like sure, that is yeah. so sad and i'm sure that there's also fear that if they were to go to maybe more of just like a general population home of some sort that maybe they wouldn't receive the same treatment as everybody else i feel like it's that possible. would be a concern for me hopefully the mm-hmm. the people at the quote unquote comfort women nursing homes or facilities um are there with a lot of knowledge and care and know how to help these women in the last years of their lives. It does seem as though in South Korea, at least, and especially in the last, you know, 20 years that they have been very much on their side um, and advocating for them. And I really do think it speaks to the power of, of being vocal uh-huh. about about these things, right? They took their power back in being able to share their stories in a lot of ways, yeah. Um, because it did it, it did give them allies, right? They're going to have people who criticize them, um, and that's got to be super difficult. So and if hard. they never wanted to talk about it again, I would completely understand it. But to those who felt like they could talk about it and wanted to share their stories, it it gave them a little bit of their power back, right? You know, Um, and and I think that that's an amazing thing. There was also a group at Crescenta Valley High School in Southern California who raised a high school, um, who raised money to send care packages to that same nursing home and wrote letters to the remaining comfort women. I love that. Did you ever do pen pals with nursing homes in school? I didn't do that, um, but I did used to live like really close to a nursing home whenever I lived in Missouri, and we would go every Halloween and like walk through the nursing home and because get candy. Yes, because <laughs> I, I want to encourage people to do that. Like, you should look into programs to see if that's something. If you if you have young children or you know you just want to go visit because. Oftentimes, they look forward to visitors yeah. and they'll sit outside their doors with candy yeah. um, and they, they want to see kids like come in in their costumes and yeah. it's, it's really something that can brighten their day. Right. So We lived around the corner from a nursing home, Max and I in our first apartment together, and I remember running into a woman and her like very young baby, but like maybe a year old, year and a half, and they had just gone and dropped off cards at the nursing home, which yeah. I thought was so sweet. But I think I was probably in like third or fourth grade, and we each got a member of a nursing home and they were our pen pals throughout like the whole year and then Mm -hmm. at the end of the year we had like a big party where everyone had their pen pal come and meet I love that like a big lunch and desserts and pictures together and it was so cool because I felt like I had made this really really awesome friend it was great yeah I mean I really do think that in 
our country, in the United States, we don't value our elderly the way that we should. Yeah. Um, because you can learn so much. It's so incredible to talk to somebody who has seen that much life. Yeah. Right. You know, and I do think that is that's something that Southeast Asian countries do really well. I think yes. for the most in part, general, there is yeah. like a lot of respect for elders where I feel like in the United States, once you've hit a certain age, you're just kind of like, ah, ship you off somewhere. We don't want to have to worry about you anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, and we're getting a little off course, but I do want to say this because it's something that I've been thinking about. Like, I think that that stems a lot from consumer, consumerist capitalist culture where your only value is lies in what you can do. And so when you no longer become physically useful yep. to the capitalist machine, then you're no longer valuable, oh. right? And so it's just kind of like you you can't work anymore, so what do we need you for? Yeah, and you I, know what I, I mean? think that does still tie in with what we're talking about, though, because I think that it's so important to to treat survivors and to treat our elderly with with such respect. I mean, I can't imagine what these women have been through. I don't know how much treatment and therapy they've been through. I mean, I can't imagine still living with so much hurt, you know? And so talking it, about that respect, I think, is really important. I don't know how you go on. I think that there's so much strength in being able to to go on living after that because... I'm just trying to think in my brain about how jarring it would be. You have a very sudden change of course, especially for the women who were abducted, right? right? You're just going about your day. You don't expect that that night you're going to be imprisoned and that you're going to be imprisoned in some cases Ugh. for several years. Oh. And then as suddenly as it began, it's, it's over. over. Yeah. And nobody is acknowledging that this is a thing that's happened to you. So, or if they are acknowledging it, it's in a really negative way. Yeah. So how are you supposed to pick up the pieces of your life and move on? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it would be really hard. It would, it would be. be so hard. You know, and there's something that, you know, whenever sexual assault is discussed, I hear a lot of, you know, the body remembers. It's one of those mm -hmm. things that doesn't really ever leave you. And so, I mean, I guess this is the time for me to encourage anybody who knows somebody who has been sexually assaulted if you have been sexually assaulted yourself the importance of getting help and therapy and talking to someone about it is so so important yeah absolutely so uh, I did want to point out that the Korean American Forum of California did successfully campaign for the inclusion of comfort women in a history social science framework. So California adopted that in 2016. The year before that, the San Francisco Board of Education approved a resolution to teach staff and students about human trafficking, including the history of comfort women. Yes. And um, last year, there was a group, the Korean American Forum of California, they created a Comfort Women Teacher's Guide that has been distributed this year free to schools across California. That is, so that's, that's great for California. Like all of California, that is California, yeah. that sounds fantastic. I hope that we can get to a place where all over the country and all over the world, this can be discussed with less fear and shame stigma. and, stigma and yeah. talk about it because... It's so none of this. I didn't know about any of this growing up in school. None uh, sexual assaults and Me mass rapes. None of that was discussed. And I think it's thought of being a way to shield us 
from pain. You know, if they don't know about it, then maybe, you know, they won't be scared of it or it won't happen. But that's just or, not the case. I also feel like we have to, as a country, stop conflating. First of all, we need to we need to move away from this puritanical belief around sex right. in general, yeah. because I feel like I feel like it, people don't want to discuss it in schools with children because they see it as a sexual thing. Yeah. So first of all, we need to move away from from not talking about sex with kids. But then secondly, we need to stop conflating rape with sex yes. because because this isn't sex, it's sexual violence. Exactly. It's violence, exactly. right? And so I think that that is something that needs to be discussed more openly. Maybe if we had these conversations then the stigma with kids down. younger. Yeah, and, and also maybe rapes would go exactly. down. Because if you really pointed out how horrifying rape yes. is to kids younger, at a younger age, and this is a very extreme example of yeah. that, um, maybe it wouldn't happen as exactly. much. You know what exactly. I mean? Because it's, I mean, it's the same thing with talking about how teaching consent needs to be a thing in schools. You know, all of this is so important. You know, we, we cannot learn if we don't, or we can't change if we don't learn about the mistakes that we've made in the past. And if we just keep pushing them down and pretending that it doesn't happen, like I keep saying, you're giving more and more leeway for these atrocities to continue to happen and continue to be pushed down and not talked about. Absolutely. Uh, so I am really glad that we covered this topic. I was really fascinated by it. You know, I finished my prep. I, I'll be honest on this podcast. There are some weeks that are easier to prep for than yeah. others. And while while this was a emotionally taxing prep, it was not difficult for me because I was so interested in wanting to hear these women's stories Definitely. and wanting to know more about this situation um, because I'd known about it on a very kind of like surface right. level in like my periphery, but I'd never actually taken the time to figure it out, like what it really was about. And it was so much worse than I had actually expected it to right, be. Right. And I mean, um, I would, I would really encourage our listeners. Also, if you go on the Wikipedia page at the bottom, there's, you know, a list of survivors and their pages where you can read about them and what they've done since then. And that was one of my favorite parts. You know, I didn't really go into these individual women much. And I appreciate you, Keegan, for helping me so much on this episode, because I feel like an airhead right now. But um, I would really encourage everybody to go read some of these individual testimonies and stories if it feels like it's something that you can handle because really the strength of these women and truly understanding their experience I think is very important absolutely absolutely so thank you all for going on this ride yeah, with us thank today. you for putting up with me I feel like I was in a daze this entire episode oh, you're fine <laughs> look we've all been there uh, for sure like we have all been there and allergies can be the worst yeah and and ugh. you never you never realize how grateful you should be for your healthy body whenever than whenever yep. you're sick like more than whenever exactly. you're sick because when you're sick you're just like man I remember when I could breathe wasn't that a nice time? The simplest you know? of things, yeah. And my body sucks so much that if I'm stuffy for too long, I'll get a sinus infection. So I'm really hoping that I start feeling better soon and don't get sicker instead. 
Um, yeah. So thank you, Keegan, for uh, being s- supportive of me through this episode. Of oh my gosh. Um, thank you so much for listening. If there's anything that you want to write us in about, please do. Um, we're going to be talking about this more, but we are going to be doing a coming out episode for the last week of June. So we would love for you to start sending in your stories if you feel comfortable. Again, if you would like to remain anonymous, you will remain anonymous. We will not use your name. So if there's anything you'd like to send in to us, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go over to the business page and like us and leave a review and go to the group page and chat with the other listeners. And if you haven't already, it means the absolute world to us when you leave us a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All right, that's all my voice can handle today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.